Got Ideas. It is a media arm of Daring Dialogues. So I want to thank you for your time and attention today as we hopefully finish up this book, Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage by Dr. Diane M. Stewart. Excellent, excellent, excellent read that she has taken us through. She has taken us through the history of black women's desire to love and be loved from jumping the broom, racial enslavement in America's roots of forbidden black love, how we essentially got to where we have gotten to in some issues, from the slow violence of white America's reign of terror through um, reconstruction times, through love and welfare, the struggle to preserve poor black families, through love in captivity, mass incarceration, and the depletion of available African-American men in American society. And to this last look, will black women ever have it all? And that's where we are concluding today. We've got quite a bit to read through, so I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to um, stop at a certain point because I do want to make sure we complete this book. I also want to show you what we'll be looking at for the rest of our season going into Black History Month. We're going to be looking at this book, Creating Black Americans, African-American History and Its Meanings from 1619 to the Present by Nell Irvin Painter. And then we're also going to be looking at, I try to do some different books every time we roll around this time. This one is called, Isn't Her Grace Amazing? Women Who Changed Gospel Music. So we'll be diving into these books on Tuesday as we continue through the rest of season 11. So let's talk and let's complete this book. Subtitle, Building Black Wealth Through Baby Bonds. Inherited poverty and wealthlessness are staples of African-American life, so much so that the financial advantages that come with marriage, like having two earners, qualifying for tax breaks for dependents, and the ability to share expenses are insufficient to close the racial wealth gap. Now, if you've been reading along with us on Fridays on my IG during Dialogues, you know that we have actually been walking through Um, All of the ways that systemic racism is built into our tax code um, by checking out another book by Dorothy A. Brown called The Whiteness of Wealth. So um, what she's saying here can be substantiated by data. Even though married couples' dual-income households are expected to generate close to four times the wealth of a single-income householder over the course of a lifetime, The combined wealth that black marriages produce is nothing to speak of when compared with the wealth of white single income households and what they generate. To add to this, as she's quoting here, Dorothy Brown's pioneering research has shown 
how federal tax laws that hurt dual income married couples disproportionately hurt African-American households. Bold solutions are needed to address this structural bleeding of black finance and the systemic racism that reproduces black poverty and wealthlessness in this nation with special consideration of the peculiar misogynoir and misandrinoir circumstances that render black women and men financially vulnerable and immobile for different reasons. We need to cultivate a new national effect regarding black love and marriage, one that never forgets Zora Neale Hurston's vernacular that the black woman is the mule of the world and one that simultaneously creates what Alicia Gaines calls empathy plus for black males and their structural alienation from gainful employment, as well as wealth building resources and opportunities. The lives visited throughout this book have illustrated how the trap of patriarchal manhood has been weaponized against black men. Now, it's very interesting that she would say that because the trap of patriarchal manhood is still being weaponized against black men. They are now being used to weaponize patriarchy against black women. Not a very smart move, by the way. From the lynching of Reverend Simmons in 1944, Mississippi, to the garnished wages of single father Zion in 2019 in New York City. I feel compelled to reinforce this point because our nation reserves a special callousness for black men that remains dangerously unacknowledged. Well, since we have been reading this book, we have literally, uh, some people who chose to watch the footage have seen on video the callousness for black men. Rest in peace, Tyree Nichols. The systemic sources of black men's alienation from their own wealth building potential can hardly be denied. Yet this nation continues to place emphasis on the anti-social measures black men take to surmount their alienation. In The Inheritance of Black Poverty, It's All About Men, Scott Winship, Richard Reeves, and Catherine Guyot make a monumental claim that identifies a starting point for structural change strategies aimed at promoting black love and marriage. Breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty for black Americans, they contend, requires a transformation in the economic outcomes for black men, particularly in terms of earnings. Their accessible report elucidates a larger 2018 study, Race and Economic Opportunity in the United States, an Intergenerational Perspective, and presents complementary statistical analysis that confirm the stark differences in upward earnings mobility for black men compared to both black women and whites. This, ladies and gentlemen, is intentional. Because if I can drive a wedge between two people who really should be fighting for each other, if I can drive a wedge between you two because of finances, then that's part of my job, right? In the end, however, it's all about what America has done to the men and the women. Black women, in fact, are most economically fragile relative to black men and whites when considering their mobility in the context of adult family income. Black men and women's inherited wealthlessness and economic immobility warrant a deeper theorization and structural innovation 
to understand and overcome it. But I want to linger on black males' economic fragility for a moment because, as I noted earlier, it apparently encourages black men who are marriageable to remove themselves from the marriage market. The explanatory work that theorists of racial capitalism have been doing provides one of the most comprehensive frameworks for understanding the roots and development of black men's enduring financial imprisonment. In America, predatory capital accumulation has required loss, disposability, and the unequal differentiation of human value. And racism enshrines the inequalities that capitalism requires. By displacing the uneven chances that are inescapably part of capitalist social relations into fictions of differing human capacities, historically race. In the United States context, the intersectionality of race, class, and gender, and the unique threat that Black masculinity has always posed to white imperial and patriarchal power make Black men specially targeted victims of racial capitalism today. For example, mass incarceration, and lower the national rate in quality of Black marriage. At the same time, a report by the conservative think tank Institute for Family Studies reveals that marriage is among the three major factors that are linked to the financial success of Black men in midlife today. The two other factors are a college degree and a full-time job. So, if the white conservative has figured out that the three things that can make a black man successful in their midlife today is a full-time job, a college degree, and marriage, it's no wonder they're pushing you away from all three things. I mean, wow. For millions of black men, none of these three achievements is an easy feat, especially in America, the way that we are institutionally set up. However, a proposal that has been receiving increasing attention in public outlets could spark an economic sea change for black men, black women, and children in the presumable near future. Economist Derek Hamilton is the architect of baby bonds, or more accurately, baby trust. This is a wealth-generating, policy-based initiative grounded in the values of economic rights. First advanced in America during the 1940s under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration, the concept of economic rights lost ground beginning with the Nixon administration and the emergence of neoliberalism. <clears throat> Hamilton envisions baby bonds as a structured federal government program that would provide seed capital for every newborn infant in America on a wealth-based rather than income-based sliding scale. Now, if implemented, baby bonds would ensure a more equitable distribution of the nation's wealth over time, since children born to the wealthiest families would receive a nominal account as low as $500, and poor children, many of whom are Black, would receive a much larger trust fund investment into the tens of thousands. In fact, the plan is based upon precise calculations that commit the federal government to providing the poorest American children between $25,000 and $60,000 that they can access and use to develop more wealth as they are adults. Baby bonds would be organized as a federally managed trust account 
with an expected annual growth of roughly 2.5% interest. To finance a federal baby bonds program in America, Hamilton proposes innovations and modifications in our current tax policies, which privilege existing wealth over establishing new wealth. Recognizing that when it comes to economic security, wealth is both the beginning and the end. He conveys better than any the necessary value of wealth building in an American and global society that has been deeply impacted by the growing divide between the rich and the poor. Wealthier families are better positioned to finance an elite independent school and college education, access capital to start a business, finance expensive medical procedures, reside in a neighborhood with higher amenities, exert political influence through campaign finance, purchase better legal counsel if confronted with an expensive criminal justice system, have a be- leave a bequest, and or withstand financial hardships resulting from any number of emergencies. Wealth is the stabilizing force for achieving and sustaining personal, familial, and social wellness and sufficiency. Therefore, When baby bonds recipients become adults, they can draw from their investments for some asset-enhancing activity like financing a debt-free education, down payment to purchase a home, or some seed capital to start a business. With baby bonds capital-awaiting Black men, marriage might soon be one of the assets increasing numbers of them will be able to secure at earlier stages of life and sustain both financially and emotionally into their twilight years. Certainly adult black female baby bond recipients who want to marry black men would find themselves in more advantageous financial positions to marry for the long term, men of comparable status before the onset of menopause. Now he said a whole lot there. I've actually been thinking about not a baby bond, but just a federal trust with monies allocated to take care of black people and close the wealth gap. There are a lot of people who are like, we don't need to be giving black people, you know, cash or we don't need to be giving them checks. Um, but the reality is money is needed. Money is needed in this world. So if you're not going to do that, then establish a, a federal trust. And so I actually agree um, with his concept of the baby bond. What I am seeing is don't just think about the baby bond for the future generation. There's a generation right now that needs help closing the wealth gap. And part of that, I feel, um, is the government's responsibility because of the way that this government has participated in excluding black people from accumulating wealth in this country. Like to me, that should be a no brainer. Your, this government literally created and enacted policies that locked black people out of creating financial wealth for decades. That this government was created on the cash, the capital, and the credit, and the insurance of Black bodies, namely our ancestors. So it is not far-fetched to say, yes, there needs to be a federal trust established for the descendants of the enslaved. 
this should have been a no-brainer a long time ago. But people are still arguing over the validity of it when there is receipt after receipt after receipt after receipt of our own government's complicity, not just individuals, not just individual plantation owners, but our government's complicity in the problem. Point blank here. During the 2020 primary election season, Democratic presidential hopeful and New Jersey Senator Cory Booker adopted Hamilton's baby bonds program as his big idea. When asked by NBC correspondent Harry Smith how he would respond if some Americans say baby bonds is just a different word for reparations, Booker had a politically expedient yet true answer. Well, it goes to every single child. He also affirmed the economic rights platform upon which baby bonds was conceived. We know there's differentials in wealth that are inherited from bigoted policies of our past that excluded families from doing the things that created wealth. Booker is correct. Baby bonds is not a reparations plan because everybody is getting it. (laughs) But like never before, the demand for reparations now stems from a wide range of constituents across America. Today's new movement of those calling for economic and wider material and immaterial restitution for the descendants of enslaved Africans in America seems determined to stay in the public eye. Of course, social media is a major ally in spreading the aims of reparations activists and advocates. The reparations question comes up regularly during presidential debates, and most politicians find themselves cornered when queried about their position on the issue. They usually dodge and deflect rather than address the topic directly. Still, while most presidential hopefuls were dancing around the issue, on June 19, 2019, concurring with Juneteenth, the U.S. Congress held a hearing on the subject of reparations. It had been 10 years since the last reparations hearing, and much was made about author and journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates' testimony before Congress, given his widely read 2014 article, The Case for Reparations. Although chances are slim that the H.R. 40 commissioned to study and develop reparations proposals for African-Americans Act, sponsored by Sheila Lee Jackson, will pass the Republican-controlled Senate, the issue will likely not go away anytime soon. So it can keep being rejected and rejected and rejected until we replace the racists and the bigots who are in those seats of power. Please replace them in the next election. Thank you. Amen. Thank you very much. As reparation scholars and activists sharpen their arguments for the debates that lie ahead, the opportunity should not pass to consider our nation's history of forbidding Black love and its cost to Black men, Black women, and Black children. In recent decades, reparations proposals have addressed a range of these resources, but none that I have seen has addressed directly the delayed and denied windows for childbearing and family building that millions of Black women face every day due to their heavily restricted dating and marriage options. Even with a slight increase in Black women opting to marry men of other racial and ethnic backgrounds, 12% in 2013, most Black heterosexual women want to marry and have children with Black men. They should not have to settle They should not have to look outside of their race or lose the opportunity to bear children 
because of the accumulated effects of structural injustice, including enslavement, racial terror, Jim Crow, substandard education, and racist and sexist educational infrastructures, divisive welfare policies, redlining, and mass incarceration, to name a few. Reparations proposals and other policies that reflect our nation's preparedness to tackle its history of forbidden Black love with empathy for Black women's particular sufferings must include programs that support Black women's reproductive health and family planning. Meanwhile, we have a epidemic of Black women dying in childbirth. And some people think that that is deliberate. I won't go into whether or not I think it's deliberate, but I will say it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. And if they're not dealing with the potential to die at disproportionate numbers from giving birth, there's another segment of black women that are dealing with cancers, breast cancer, um, ovarian cancer, um, fibroid tumors, all of this stuff due to <clears throat> other things that have been put into our bodies that pharmaceutical companies were aware of that now there are class action suits about because these things have also affected black women's reproductive health. So it's a lot to unpack. Reparations reproductive health initiatives might address delayed childbearing and the fertility concerns older black women face when attempting to become pregnant. They should also account for the historic disproportionate sterilization, that's the other thing, of black women in this country and their high rates of premature births, perinatal deaths, and maternal deaths related to childbirth. These steps are necessary to tackle and dismantle forbidden black love and its consequences for black women. However, because the black community lacks a sustained focus on the roots and long-term manifestations of forbidden black love across four centuries, and because we have neglected to frame black women's low marriage rates as an actual civil rights issue that it is, our ability to change the love, marriage, and childbearing outcomes has been severely hampered. And the last part that she's about to get on here is one that I'm learning more about because I am. I'm learning more about it. Um, <clears throat> because I'm seeing more, but I'm also learning more about how this is affecting um, relationships in the Black community. Dismantling colorism and phenotypic stratification. Now, I have heard of colorism, obviously, but I have not really heard about phenotypic stratification. So these two concepts put together are known as CPS. In addition to the obstacles of inherited wealthlessness and poverty and patriarchal marriage, colorism and phenotypic stratification poses a third threat to healthy black love, marriage, and family formation. Excuse me. While CPS is a global phenomenon impacting populations of color beyond Africa and its diaspora, 
Asians, Middle Easterners, and others, the darker one's skin and the more stereotypically African one's overall phenotype, the lower one is on the CPS stratification scale. Addressing this Goliath of immaterial and material proportions, things like self-loathing, depression, skin bleaching, and other harmful body modifications is beyond the scope of this book. Only multi-pronged initiatives can marshal the resources to adequately confront perhaps the most elusive of all three obstacles tackled in this chapter. But some reflections on a way forward are nevertheless warranted and critically important. It is abominable and untenable that the world hates dark skin and stereotypic African features, but it's even more egregious that people of African descent have internalized this hatred so deeply as we have seen the consequences of CPS for black love, especially lower rates of marriage for women with medium and dark complexions are psychologically and physically wounding. However, research has linked CPS to higher rates of punishment for black children of darker hues, harsher prison sentences for black people of darker hues, and stratified employment outcomes for light versus dark skinned blacks. All of these patterns directly or indirectly impact the state of black love and marriage. What we need in black America to tackle CPS is an all out unapologetic war against this degrading ideology. We need a social and cultural movement of proportions analogous to the Me Too movement, one that will override our current programming of bias and discrimination against those targeted by CPS. This movement might be called abolish colorism or perhaps something else, but whatever we name it, we must be potent enough to shatter the ideological, aesthetic, and cultural standards that feed CPS in every corner of human existence and interaction, in every institutional space, from the family to the church, from the advertising and television industries to schools and universities, from the sports industry to the tourism industry. All black persons who promote CPS, especially those determined to welcome a different day for the state of black love and marriage, must do their part to liberate their spirits, their thoughts, their tongues, and their actions from this psychic poison, so long a lethal concoction bathed over the collective soul life of African descendants in this nation <clears throat> and beyond. While all black skin tones and phenotypic features have to be valued, if we are to overcome CPS and enhance marriage outcomes for all women, a strategy for doing so has to include what social media influencer Chrissy calls corrective promotion of dark-skinned women. There are signs that an anti-CPS movement is on the horizon with nations like Nigeria choosing to only use women of their um, particular country and ethnicity in their promotion of their ads. Its strength and reach slowly building in some spaces across our own nation. I began this chapter asking the question, will black women ever have it all? One person who represents that she fully intends to have it all is Karis Rogers. The 13-year-old entrepreneur launched her clothing line, Flexing in My Complexion, when she decided that she would no longer be the target of her classmates' CPS jokes and insults. Since the first grade, fellow students threw lines at Karis such as, quote, you've been in the oven too long, you're a burned biscuit. 
Physically assaulted and abandoned by her playmates, Karis's self-concept was impacted by these traumatic experiences that while still in the first grade, she told her older sister she wanted to spend extra time in the bathtub in hopes that her skin would get lighter. With support from her maternal family, Kara soon relieved her trauma with a t-shirt line meant to affirm her patrons with empowering messages about their value and uniqueness. I was being bullied for my complexion, she explains, so I wanted to empower others by making my t-shirt line saying, flexing in my complexion. With direct support from her sister turned manager, Taylor Pollard, Kara sold more than 10,000 shirts her first year of operation. Her endorsers include decorated actors and screenwriters and entertainers like Lupita Nyong'o, Lena Waithe, Alicia Keys, and Snoop Dogg. The young fashionista's inventiveness has also created new paths for her to spread her message and her brand, taking her from her native LA to New York City as the youngest designer to display her clothing line in the 2017 New York Fashion Week. The most important lesson from Karis' story is the transformative intervention the women in her family engineered when they rallied behind their legacy to ease her suffering and rehabilitate her concept, her self-concept. This is important because, um, especially when we're dealing with children and the impact of colorism and phenotypic stratification, if we are not paying attention, bullying can go unaddressed and unresolved and I will say this, suicide is on the rise amongst black children. And part of it is some of these issues, the teasing, the taunting, the bullying, but also making sure that there is a family intervention that happened. That is what happened with Karis. Her family intervened. They began to affirm her. They began to support her. And she's in a different headspace now because of that family intervention. Yeah. The support from her maternal lineage was potent enough to disrupt the narrative that Karis was receiving at school. Her grandmother, mother, and sister wrapped what scholars from my academic neighborhood would call their loving womanist arms around her injured body and soul and affectionately affirmed her deep black beauty. In a 2018 interview, CBS correspondent Jamie Ukis asked Karis what she sees when she looks in the mirror. Karis saw exactly what her matrifocal unit, her womanist nation, prepped her to see. I see black beauty. I see melanin popping. The charm of this young advocate for black love is already unmistakable. Karis is as infectious as Michelle Obama, and I want so much to believe that she will one day have love professional fulfillment and compensation commensurate to her education and experience and comparable to her white and male counterparts. I believe and I want to believe that if she desires heterosexual union with a black man in her adult life, that she will have dating access to a range of appealing men among whom she will find her life partner. And I want most of all to believe that those assets of love and marriage will accrue to her early enough to bear children with her husband if they choose to parent natural born children of their own. Although the odds are against us, it is not fanciful for black girls and women to admire and aspire to the quality of love and marriage that others before have experienced.
Despite the plastic lives of so many celebrities and public figures and what it has come to symbolize, Michelle Obama's life is anything but plastic. Her love was not made for television, and her high-profile marriage discredited Fox News' pathetic attempt to reduce her just to Obama's baby mama. In fact, Michelle transformed the White House into the Black House by establishing its first African-American family tradition when her mother moved in with her daughters to help care for her granddaughters. The Africana matrifocal unit made it from the enslaved quarters all the way into the nation's headquarters, illustrating the African proverb that Hillary Clinton loved to quote, but did not actually demonstrate with her own family. It takes a village to raise a child. Asked by CNN correspondent Randy Kay how she felt when she saw Michelle Obama walk out on that stage in Grant Park in Chicago in 2008, when the victory was declared, Michaela Angela Davis replied, she looked like she belonged there, and that's how I felt. I felt like I belong here, and all my ancestors, they belonged here. Everyone that dreamed about her was validated in that moment. <clears throat> well, the moment I watched Karis Rogers walk out on that stage to model her clothing line at the 2017 New York Fashion Week, I too felt that she belonged there. Knowing in my own black flesh, that all her enslaved ancestors, especially her foremothers, had proclaimed love as their salvation, had dreamed about her coming, and for some, even her belonging. As I watched her speak with magnetic flair before large audiences, selling her product and her influence, I imagined how generations of enslaved and nominally free black women had to have yearned for this very thing. Karis is theirs to claim their womanish baby girl with the audacity to name the dark, radiant skin she's in, Melanin Poppin. No Margaret Garner type scar creating a permanent runaway on her face. No need to be told never marry again in slavery. But she knows nonetheless that her chances of marrying a black man with assets suitable for enduring love are still slim. <clears throat> the Garner story that we went over earlier in this book and the narratives of other figures encountered throughout this volume unveil the terrible truth that if we do not act now, America's war on African-American marriage will likely deny Karis the fundamental civil right to romantic love and marital coupling as it has been for so many black women before her, from enslavement to the present day. For black women in particular, discerning how to respond to what we often experience is an up close and personal battle and it can invite immobilizing feelings of overwhelm and powerlessness. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we must respond knowing that with all the lovelessness and lawlessness that black girls and women have endured for four centuries in this country, with all the abandonment and exclusion, we keep emerging as paragons of unconditional, tenacious love among our families, our local communities, the national population, and ourselves. Single and coupled black women are even discovering new ways of loving and supporting one another and building sisterhood through international travel groups, exercise teams, book clubs, expos, conventions, and now strip malls to support our fellow business women. 
These womanist practices of solidarity and hospitality support sociality, heal brokenness, and mitigate the isolation and loneliness that sometimes Black women can experience during long and even permanent periods of undesired singlehood. Through practices of love, Black women have fashioned a womanist grammar of belonging, indeed a womanist love language, that this nation must now learn to speak fluently. As we mobilize with allies who want to see new possibilities for us and Black love in America, this is the heritage we must remember and uphold. Now this is her um, afterward, <clears throat> which I do want to read. Black love seems to be on America's mind. Since the turn of the 21st century, a bevy of television series, online blogs, digital stories, and social media conversations have captured the interest of Black women and others with themes of Black love, both forbidden and found, that privilege Black women's dilemmas and dreams. From soul food to girlfriends and being Mary Jane to insecure to Queen Sugar and sisters, and from the reality TV show Black Love <clears throat> to Oprah Winfrey's network Black Love series, Black women across the nation explore nightly the uneven terrains of love, courtship, and marriage with their favorite television personalities who act out roles and emotions they know all too well. Among these titles, the storyline for the television series Being Mary Jane, which aired from 2014 to 2019, echoed many of the themes explored in this book, and the producers of the finale appeared eager to answer the guiding question. In the end, Mary Jane Paul, a dark-skinned Black woman, does indeed get it all. When her last hope for Black love and marriage terminates their relationship, Mary Jane decides, it's finally, decides to finally go it alone. She accesses her previously frozen eggs and attempts pregnancy via artificial insemination using donor sperm. The pregnancy takes and immediately after, her black beau Justin returns to her with a change of heart. Following a few dramatic twists and turns involving a competing suitor, Mary Jane's concealment of her pregnancy from Justin, Justin's second exit after learning about the concealed pregnancy, and Mary Jane's premature delivery of a baby boy, the financially secure couple finally settles into a firm commitment to marry and raise Mary Jane's baby boy in a loving two-parent household. Mary Jane's trajectory parallels many of the realities Black women, even professionally successful, upper-class Black women like her confront today. Had she not frozen her eggs, she might not have been able to deliver a child of her own, given her late-stage marriage to Justin. For the 40-year-old Mary Jane, just in the nick of time, everything falls into place. I mean everything, the baby, the suitor, the wedding. The final scene before Mary Jane disappears from our lives and Black women can no longer live vicariously through her accumulation of it all. Closing scenes can make or break a show or film, but this is where being Mary Jane actually does disappoint. After spending several years illustrating the complexities of Black love and marriage, the shifting landscapes of the Black marriage market for post-sex in the city generations of Black women, the finale betrays the series' most substantive message with Mary Jane's final voiceover monologue, her ultimate awakening. I realize, she declares, the only affirmation you need is let go and let love. Because the second you get out of your own way and stop orchestrating, it just happens. The moment you stop saying me and without thinking, start saying us. 
That's the moment you're finally able to allow the love you want in. At this instance, Mary Jane and her husband, her at last husband, Justin, are lip locked and dancing at the wedding ceremony to Natalie Cole's This Will Be. And the scene does convey that black women can have it all. Even dark skinned black women can have the career, the baby, the life, the mate. If they know the right formula, the proven strategy to follow into the arms of a forever man. Thanks to Mary Jane Paul, the secret sauce has been divulged to all the single black women in America who want what Mary Jane finally gets. Not quite. In the scene, the family is dancing around the happy couple surrounded by wedding guests. As Mary Jane arrives at the point in her monologue of verbalizing the word us, the camera zooms in on her, her and Justin escaping to a private sensual kiss. In the middle of the dance floor crowded with people, the camera shot creates an ambiance that makes everyone else disappear for those last moments of her reflection. This is your world, black women, your world of love, joy, companionship, and fulfillment. And all you have to do is, quote, allow the love you want in. As soon as she utters that final preposition in, the camera slowly blurs out the scene and Mary Jane and Justin loosen their lips and applaud the love and commitment they have vowed to preserve ending the storyline and the series. The long history of forbidden black love is that this book has brought to the surface and tells a different story of black women's love outcomes. Only the rare black woman has experienced love just happening the moment she stopped orchestrating. Only the luckiest of the lucky have wrestled with the dilemma of allowing the love she actually wants in. There is something to be said about self-help approaches to the personal side of dating, self-improvement, and selecting a desirable partner for love and marriage. I will never deny the importance of personal dynamics involved when seeking and securing good love. And this book is not meant to undermine the works of others who seek out self-help or provide it. What I do hope to convey is that self-help approaches can unwittingly veil the actual systemic problems that create poor marriage outcomes for black women. If anything, this book is an intervention meant to complement the best clinical and therapeutic advice on the, on the market for self-improvement and improving the quality of love and marriage couples will share. Understand, it's not just black women have a problem of letting love in, it's the many ways that black love and opportunities for black love have been intentionally, systemically shut out for them. Unfortunately, Mary Jane Paul, the dark complexion black woman who gets to have the complete pack package is a fiction. But all around her, real black women of every complexion are holding up a mirror to the nation to see itself reflected in their undeserved love defeats. From where black women stand, the current state of black love and marital unions renders the problem of the 21st century, the problem of forbidden black love. It cannot be trivialized with assertions that black marriage patterns reflect wider patterns in American institution of marriage. That they do is true, but many social determinants of the alarming state of black love and marriage are uniquely connected to black people's involuntary presence in this nation, a nation that across centuries of unchecked white terror and systemic racism has refused to ensure the protection and liberties of its black citizens, 
including the liberty of love and marriage. For this reason, the harmful consequences of America's overall diminishing rate of marriage and high rate of divorce for Black women and communities are more intense and deeply disproportionate compared to other American women and communities. This book demands structural interventions and vigilant attention from our nation's most powerful stakeholders and most affected victims. If Americans believe in the founding documents of our Republic, the inalienable right of all Americans to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and in the civil right of marriage for all American adults, then Americans have a civic responsibility to address the structural causes of this crippling phenomenon. Supporting Black love is not only an essential step in liberating Black women, men, and children from endless webs of related injustice, it is also a pathway to liberation from centuries of organized hate and apathy. America can learn to love Black people in part by institutionalizing the collective love and humanity Black people have shown this nation through patriotism, protest, prayer, and public vision. Beyond its effect in personal and private affairs, Black love has performed political and public roles of demanding national repentance, justice, repair, and healing. And Black women know better than any that desired institutional changes are likely to occur once America accepts our long-standing invitation to claim Black love as its salvation. That was a read. Black women, black love. As she said, the problem is systemic. The problem is systemic. One more time. The problem is systemic. It is not just there's a lack of men. The question is why? And she answers the why. Again, she takes you starting from enslavement, what happened in enslavement, the laws that were enacted in in enslavement, through being freed from enslavement, reconstruction, black codes, early days of imprisonment, lynchings of black men, Black landholders, black businessmen, black business owners, to the systems of welfare and the rules that were imposed on black people during that time, to mass incarceration, and yet another depletion of available black men. She also talked about the challenge of black women choosing to marry black men who are in incarceration for decades. And then she ended by talking about shifting the landscape of love, what it would take to build some economic capital for future generations coming. This is a thorough book and we have read the entire thing here on Black Table Talk. So if you go back through our videos on Tuesdays, you will find me reading this book starting from the very beginning. As a Black and Indigenous woman 
who is married to a black man. Let me say. <laughs> it is a joy. It has been an honor. It has been a privilege to be married to a black man. And not have to fight through some of the things that she talked about in this book. And as she said, it is not something, it's a rare case that it just happens. There's some intentionality and some planning that has to go along with your black love. And that leads me to uh, my closing point before I leave some time here. If you would like to come on and respond to today's reading, uh, type I'm here in the comments and that will give me an idea if I need to bring someone on before I close. But um, recently saw <laughs> a movie. Oh, a movie. What was the name of this movie? It just came out. So I'm going to give my thoughts on it in a actual post. I'm going to do a, a write-up. But the movie was called You People. And the movie posits itself as a sort of a remake of, of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. But it really essentially could have been called Propaganda 2023. And I can, I can, uh, I looked at some of the interviews around it before I watched it and I could really identify with Lauren London saying when, when asked, cause initially she did not want to do this film and I, and after watching it, I could see why she didn't want to do it, <laughs> but I can identify with her saying, you know, she didn't want to do this film and she said to the producers, why do you want me to do this film? I can think of a whole bunch of reasons why they wanted her to do the film, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Why do you want me to do this film? And with two very different characters that you don't necessarily see an attraction there for the characters. Why would you want to bring me onto this project? And the response she was given was, you know, well, in order for this film to work, it had to be a really like culturally known, you know, beautiful black woman who is really dope, et cetera, et cetera, to make people stop and say, what's going on here with this relationship and why is she with this quote unquote white dude? Yeah. And my question would be, why are we making that movie? Just wondering. Why why are we making that movie again? Why? What was the point of making that movie? And then I started looking at the producer. And then I started looking at his work. <laughs> and then I said, okay, I could see why he would make that movie. I could see why. However, that movie does not help this. 
And this is what we are on. Because I'm going to tell you again what was said in a meeting I was in. With a room full of (laughs) white supremacists. Yep, I've sat in some of those rooms before. In a room full of white supremacists, this was said. Without a black family, there is no black us. Without a black family, there is no humanity. He didn't say black humanity. It's a white man speaking, by the way. He didn't say there's no black humanity. He said without a black family, there is no humanity. There is no humanity. There is no future humanity. Without a black family, without black people coming together and making more black people, there is no future humanity. Now you would have to go into a little bit of genetics to understand why that that statement is true. But they had just as much skin in the game, so to speak, of seeing their own families come together. They had as much skin in the game as seeing us come together as they did their own families. Because they understood and still do understand that there's no future humanity without black people coming together to make more black humans on this earth. So you can argue with the science. Don't argue with me. Just argue with the science. We make, we make everyone else. That's what he was saying. We make everyone else. So if you want a future for everyone else, you might want to make sure these two come together and have healthy relationship and family. That's what he was saying. Now, was I shocked to hear this coming out of a white man's mouth? I absolutely was. (laughs) But I have never forgotten it. So they know. The question is, why don't we know? Oh, okay. Obviously, I mean, look at our society. Why don't we know? Why don't we know? So I want you to think about that. I want you to just let that marinate for a little bit. Let that marinate. I think people need to let that marinate. If you are intending to come on, I've got about 10, 15 minutes here. We can chop it up. If not, I will bid you adieu. So I'm going to give you some time, about 30 seconds here, to decide if you're going to come on. If you're listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are also on Anchor, anchor.fm forward slash Daring Dialogues. Like my sweatshirt today, self-care is a revolutionary act. I've got self-care revolutionary on the back. You can pick this sweatshirt up at my shop. I'll leave the link in the comments because, yeah. 
hopefully more people in 2023 are realizing that they need to get into this revolutionary act. I want to thank you again for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues Black Table Talk Edition, and I've been your host, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. Take care, and may the creator of the universe, the originator of the melanin popping, be with you. <laughs>